Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people, empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to invite you, if you would, to listen to one of our high school students, Isaac, read the passage we're going to study in just a few moments, Acts 2, 42 through 47, from the message paraphrase. Thanks, Isaac. That day, about 3,000 took Peter at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed, meals, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added to those who were saved. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Hey, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts 2, 42 through 47, if you haven't already. And uh, we're going to look at this passage again today. And uh, as you are, if you've just joined us, we're in this series called Onward. What do we mean by that? We're trying to learn how to be a missionary kind of people that realize that Jesus has given us a mission to care about this our community and world. And so you'll notice that the banners have a red dot, which is our church building uh, where we gather. And uh, how we spread out throughout our community and world is what he wants us to understand better. So to grow in that, we've been looking at the Bible book of Acts. And uh, today we're coming to the end of chapter two, and the message is entitled Life Together. Now, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Steve opened up most of Acts two, which was Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached to a huge crowd and 3,000 people after he challenged them to repent, be baptized and believe in Jesus, 3,000 people took him up on it and were baptized that day. So it was an amazing day. Here's what I want to ask you to think about with me today. What did they do next? What they did next is something that the Lord wants to do in our lives as well. And the answer to what they did next is found in Acts 2.42. Do you mind reading? It's that first gray box there. It has the verse. Let's read it out loud together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, that's what they did. So the question that I put there in the notes at the very top is, what's a church look like when it's fueled by the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've never been part of one before. Maybe you're, you're wanting to know, what would that look like? If I was ever part of a church, what does it look like when it's fueled by the Holy Spirit? Why did those people devote themselves? And what did they devote themselves to? What does that mean today? Uh, this last week when I was in the worship center here praying with some of the other staff like we do each week uh, and praying for the people that might drive by, children, students, adults, intergenerational in our church and outside our church, I found myself just remembering that what preaching is about is it's my job or whoever's teaching to teach what the scriptures meant and what they mean what the scripture meant when it was originally written, what was the intention, and what does it mean today? 
So I want to talk to you about that. What they devoted themselves meant, and then later what they devoted themselves mean. Now, here's what I hope happens. I want to cover the first half of those message notes, the first half of the message, as quickly as possible for Jeff Nelson. And you know they have to qualify that. But I want to get to the second half because it's really the nugget of what I think God wants us to look at today about why, what did they do, why did they do it, what does he want us to know, what's it look like if our church is fueled by the Holy Spirit. So would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at this together. Now, Lord, I pray that you'll teach us what it means and also what it meant that they devoted themselves. And I know people are at all different points of life here, so your ability to speak to every person is amazing. I pray you do that and show us, God, what you want us to know and what you want us to do. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so as we think about this together, what does devoted mean? If you're following along, devoted, it's actually a Greek word, and uh, it's pros kateretos. <laughs> I didn't say that very well. Pros kateretikos. And what the idea here is it means uh, that uh, pros means near or toward. So if you're following along, I'll just tell you what it means rather than try and do this crazy thing since I can't pronounce the word. Continuing to move toward strongly. Continuing to move toward strongly. The idea is uh, near or toward strong. And some of your Bible translations uh, actually talk about how you stick with it. And so they, uh, can stay, they um, continually, steadfastly continued this way. So it's that idea. It's probably the most intense word for commitment in the Greek language that they could use. So what it's saying is, look, these people, once they were baptized, didn't say, see at Christmas and Easter, maybe once a Sunday every month. No, they said, we are going to get involved as a new community. We're going to devote ourselves. So as we're thinking about this, let me just ask you, this is fascinating. Because in our culture, if you haven't already seen, it's becoming more popular to move away from devoted in another direction. So I want you to just think about while you're listening to what it meant for them, is just ask yourself, Lord, where am I today? So I know just, again, by being part of a church many, many years and being part of a different church families, that it's possible to be distant, to be out here disconnected, uh, indifferent. Maybe some things have happened that have made you disillusioned. But what would it look like if God moves you from distant to devoted? Because that's what exactly happened to these 3,000 people. They were out here, and all of a sudden, as, as God worked in their life, he moved them towards devoted. It was something they kept giving themselves steadfastly to. So as we think about this, what did they give themselves strongly to? What did they move towards strongly with intensity, with wholeheartedness? Well, first, there's four things. First, Learning together. If you're following along, they devoted themselves to learning together by submitting to the apostles' teaching. And uh, we see this when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what does that mean? The apostles were those that had been with Jesus. And if you have never seen this before, what is the apostles' teaching today? It's the New Testament. So if you're following along, the apostles' teaching is our New Testament. Now, this was all before the printing press, so I want to give you a, a something, a, an image, a picture for each one of these four. So if they had lived after the printing press, here's how it would have looked. They would have had open Bibles leaning in. They had an eagerness to learn. They, they devoted themselves to learning together. But because they didn't have the New Testament yet, they couldn't do that. 
And so, in fact, most people couldn't afford copies of the Bible. So they met in the apostles' teaching and they submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One author puts it this way. The apostles were people who had seen the risen Christ, but also the apostles were the people who Jesus Christ came to and specifically authorized to be those who disseminated his truth and teaching. With most of them, he lived with them for three years and he trained and taught them. With Paul, he came later to him and spent three years giving him revelations in Arabia. You can read about that in Galatians. The point is, Jesus came to the apostles and he authorizes them to take the truth out. The whole church recognizes that the apostles are the ones who bear the truth about Jesus. Therefore, they dedicate themselves to it. That's why you see that when the apostles start to die off at the end of the first century, you do not have the church saying, oh, wonderful. Now there's room for us. They had their insights into these spiritual matters. Now we have ours. No. What did they do? They collected all the writings that were either written by an apostle or by an associate of an apostle. They collected all the writings that embodied the apostolic solid deposit of truth and teaching, and they put them into the New Testament. That's the reason why Paul can say in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is the New Testament and the Old Testament, a foundation that is rock solid. Now, when you think about this, then, if we're studying the New Testament, what did these people teach? When these people showed up and said, hey, tell us what Jesus taught you when you were with him about what we're supposed to give ourselves to. What, what does that look like? And they said, we can help you with that. He gave us five word pictures. And if you turn your notes over to the back, these are things that show up in the New Testament of what they taught the new believers and what they knew themselves from by being with Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to know what it means to love my church and give yourself to move strongly towards it, here's what I'm calling you into. First, you need to know that my church, his church, it's his body. That means as soon as you and I are saved by the grace of God, he makes us a member of his body. His physical body, he actually ascended into heaven. We already saw that he's at the right hand of God. But now we are his physical body here on earth. It may feel funny or weird to say that, but that's the picture. And in Corinthians, it says that that means you and I can't go around and say to each other, I don't need you. I can be a solo body part. Second picture is his bride. Years ago, God began to really change my heart and move me more in the direction of being devoted to his church when I read this line one day about marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. Oh, man, did he give himself for her. Third, his building. His building. Now, we often talk about church. We go, I'm going to church. And we mean I'm going to a building. But that's not the church. The church is living stones. And 1 Peter tells us that he is taking each one of us now that we belong to him and he's taking our individual stones and he's putting us together to make a holy temple, so to speak, in this world. And you and I cannot be solo stones and live out our purpose. But many people say, I'll move towards individualistic approach with Jesus rather than devoted to his church. Fourth, his family. Jesus was one that once asked this question, who are my brothers and sisters? those who do the will of my father. And he, he basically was teaching, look, when I save you, you become my brother and sister. We're related. Friends, I've, I've actually been, I've taught in Ethiopia, in the Philippines, in Mexico, in England, and in Springfield, and other places in the United States. Here's what I've learned. Within five minutes, 
if I meet someone who's been saved by Jesus. There is a familial, there is a family kind of sense that I cannot explain that sometimes is even deeper than we might have with some of our own physical family, biological family members. When Jesus makes us new and his family, it's an amazing thing. Fifth, his flock. So his body, his bride, his building, his family, and finally his flock. Jesus taught Peter this. Peter denied Jesus three times. So we already saw that he was a total mess up as a follower of Jesus at times. I can relate to that. But here's the thing. When Jesus restored Peter, he asked him, because he denied Jesus three times, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Interesting question. Why did he pick that one? Because he knew that if his heart was in it, then it was different. But each time when, when Peter says, Lord, it's painful to have you ask me that, but you know deep down I love you, even though I failed you. And Jesus, instead of saying, oh, good to know, what was the next thing he said? Then take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Translated, love me, love my church. You can't separate them. People try and do it all the time. But if you love me, You'll love what I gave myself for. You'll love what I believe and what I'm building. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what I'm up to in this world. That's my mission to reach the world and this community. So if you please read the four lines there at the bottom so we can all think about this together out loud. Jesus' church is not a physical building of brick and mortar, but a people he's graciously redeemed by his sacrificial death. Jesus' people are joined together by his Holy Spirit to glorify God and invite others to trust in Jesus too. So if you want to turn your notes back over, what happened is, is they said, okay, that makes sense. Now I realize why he wants me to move strongly towards being part of his church. So they devoted themselves to learning together. Second, and again, open Bible for that. When you think of that, they had this learning spirit. Second thing is that they devoted themselves to loving together. Loving together how? Um, by giving, serving, and sharing willingly. By giving, serving, and sharing willingly. One of the things that happened is that, in fact, one of the historians in those days said of the early church, the early Christians, see how they love one another. They were blown away. There was something about the way they loved each other that wasn't perfect, but it was profound. And they saw that even in their imperfect love for each other, it was so much different than any quality of love they'd seen before. And how they did it was by giving themselves away, by serving each other, by building up one another, and by sharing. In fact, that second gray box has verse 44. Would you read that out loud with me, please? And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. And it tells us more, not only in verse 45, but also in chapter 4. They were in this habit. Now, I'll just pull back the curtain a little bit on what happens behind the scenes when we're not together on Sundays with some of us on the staff. So you know that we team teach here, and we really believe in that. And I'm so thankful to teach with Steve and Brian and Luke and other people, Chuck and others. And so when we team teach, sometimes we're figuring out how to pass out the different sections of Scripture to preach on. And every once in a while, there's a section of Scripture that I really want to preach on or someone else really wants to preach on. So here's what we've done to kind of call that out and name it. We've just said, I want to preach on that. 
See, what are we doing? We're holding it close, kind of like being possessive of it, kind of like it's ours. What changes is when you and I realize that everything we have is a gift. It's on loan. And so what these early Christians discovered is, oh my goodness, he's brought me into his body, his family, his flock, and now everything I have, I want to learn how to share it differently or at least not hold on to it. So the picture here is open hands, not clutching, not tight-fisted, but open hands. And that was going on. And the picture here is a fellowship. It says they devoted themselves, what? To the fellowship. And what does that mean? It's a word that's very deep in the Greek language. And we often have heard some of it, and if you've come to church very long, koinonia. In the, in the, in the uh, Roman world, Greek was the modern language. It was the international language. And so they had the New Testament, for instance, is written in Greek. But it was a certain kind of Greek that struck a lot of people. It was called Koine Greek, which meant the common Greek. Not the highly classical Greek for the intellectual people, but the street, down down to the street, Koine Greek. So it meant to have in common. In fact, if you're following along, Koinea means to have in common and to share with another. So now that we have in common that we belong to Jesus, we notice that we also have some other things in common. And that's how we're learning together. That's how we're loving together. And again, it's a process of growing into this, but we're learning how to hold things in common rather than to just hold things in clutch. And as they did that, I'm telling you, it was an amazing thing. Even unbelievers sat up and took notice. Third thing that they devoted themselves to was not only learning and loving together, but worshiping together in a big group and a small group. Worshiping together in a big group and a small group. Would you read verse 46 in that third grade box with me to read about this? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Years ago, someone taught me to circle temple courts and homes. Temple courts and homes. They didn't just do big group. I'm so thankful you're here. This is important when we gather together in a big group. It, God does something oftentimes in these meetings. But they also met in homes. It's very difficult it's very difficult to really love people deeply in a big group like this. But God can teach us a lot of things when we meet in homes or smaller groups. And so these early Christians gave themselves, they moved strongly towards devoting themselves to worshiping God. And how do they worship God? They worship God by taking communion in their homes. And when they did, uh, they often found themselves remembering Jesus who now sat at the right hand and what he had done for them on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. They prayed together. They prayed together a lot. They didn't just talk to God, they listened to him. And they also, uh, they also praised him, the scripture tells us. So the picture I'd love for you to think of this way is just an uplifted, an open face. So open Bible, open hands, open faces. That's how they worshiped him together. They realized that he was at the right hand of God the Father. The fourth thing they did was not only learning, loving, worshiping, but finally, they also devoted themselves to inviting together and making room for others that the Lord adds. By inviting together and making room for others, the Lord adds. One of the things that happens when you get this kind of relationship going and this kind of momentum is it's real easy to say, I really like the way it is right now. Uh, please, Lord, don't change it at all. But the Lord kept adding. 
We think we have parking problems. I mean, they had 3,000, later 5,000, and so they had to learn how to let their hearts keep growing bigger. One of the things about any healthy family is that they're not just turned, on and turned in on themselves and only care about each other. They also care about people outside their family. And so the same way with the church family, they were learning how to invite. Now, here's the one thing that I'm always nervous about whenever I teach on the church. Some of you are hearing me say that the only thing that matters is what happens inside when we gather. It's not true. The church scattered and gathered. And when they scattered, the way they rubbed shoulders with their coworkers, the way that they did their work, the way that they interacted with their family members who didn't yet believe, the way that they interacted with their classmates, the way they interacted in their neighborhoods, something started happening. And people noticed and they continued to say, hey, this isn't just for me. This is for you too. If you'd ever be interested, we'd love to have you. They made room. They were willing to add more chairs if necessary. And this was the spirit. And for this picture, I picture open arms. Rather than, no, no, no. They were willing to say, okay, we'll make room for you. We'll make room. This is what was going on. This is what it meant when they devoted themselves and what they devoted themselves to. Years ago, maybe I've shared this with you before, but I was absolutely ambushed when I heard about uh, a teacher who ended his class one day. And this was a Christian college. And so he ended his class and he stepped around the front of his desk and he just suddenly unplanned began to speak these words. There was once a community of believers who were so totally devoted to God that their life together was charged with the spirit's power. In that band of Christ followers, believers loved each other with a radical kind of love. They took off their masks and shared their lives with one another. They laughed and cried and prayed and sang and served together in authentic Christian fellowship. Those who had more shared freely with those who had less until socioeconomic barriers melted away. People related together in ways that bridged gender and racial chasms and celebrated cultural differences. Acts 2 tells us that this community of believers, this church, offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so beautiful, it took their breath away. It was so bold, so creative, so dynamic that they couldn't resist it. Verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then this teacher ends his talk with these words that went right to my heart. Why can't there be a community of people like that today? Has God lost his power? You should give your life to this, he said. I was already a pastor. When I heard those words, I thought, I need to give my life to this. I need to move from indifference or, you know, sitting on the fence, and I need to devote myself like Jesus is moving those 3,000 people, and he wants to move me. Lord, show me what that would look like. Not just because I'm a pastor, if I was just a regular Christian, show me what that would look like, because that's what these people were that you worked in. And so what they devoted themselves means. I want to talk to you about that. Now, here's, here's what I wonder if you're thinking like this. When you, when you think about these 3,000 people, do you picture that they did it as a have to, as a duty? Because a lot of people, I've met lots of people over the years, they go to church because they should. They go to church because it's the right thing to do. And you can always tell that 
while they're doing it, they sometimes wish they were somewhere else or, you know, they just then always get a lot out of it. And I can imagine that's not fun. That's not what these people were like. And so this week, I was just talking with Trish. As I read this passage, and God works in my imagination, and if I understand the word devoted in all of its fullness, it's not duty-bound. It's not they had to. It was different. So if you're following along, here's what the word devoted really means for me. To keep giving oneself fully out of a want-to spirit. To keep giving oneself fully out of a want-to spirit. Years ago, I I read a letter by a former college president named Robertson McQuilkin. And uh, his wife, Muriel, was suffering at that time from the advanced ravages of Alzheimer's disease. So in March 1990, Dr. McQuilkin announced his resignation from the college in a letter with these words. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry on both her ever grow, carry her both growing needs and my leadership responsibilities here at the college. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me, so it is clear to me that she needs me now, full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand what I shared in my announcement of resignation in chapel. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. Here's what he writes. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. And he captured what the early Christians understood. So if you're following along, they move from a have to to a want to and get to spirit. They move from a have to to a want to and a get to spirit. You see this happening. It just struck me again. They did all of this willingly. No one's paying them. No one's holding a gun to their head. There's some people that don't necessarily like them when they do this, but they have a want to spirit that pulls them forward. And the early people of that time, they just, they even knew that the Lord had worked something powerful in their hearts. They wanted to. They wanted to give themselves to learning, loving, worshiping, and inviting. And I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where people didn't want to, or when they were half-hearted. It's altogether different. But when you walk into a group of people that are there because they want to, and they're giving themselves, 
totally different. My, um, I was thinking about why they did that. I think it's because they saw in Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus is a person that was given a huge have to. Did you know that there was no other way for you and I to be brought back to God than by his sacrifice? I know people say all the time, oh, there's lots of ways to get to God. Not according to scripture. If God did not sacrifice his son in our place, we would all still be lost and die in our sin. But Jesus came. And so Jesus took the have to. Now here's the verse uh, from Luke. Here's how he explains the have to. He says, did not the Messiah, me, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? They were trying to figure out, why did you have to die on the cross? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I had to to fulfill scripture. I had to to make you right with God. Is a have to. But can you imagine if he had done that because he just said, well, I have to. I got to die for you. I don't, I, mean, I don't really care about you, but I have to. That wouldn't move me at all. But notice what he says in John 10. This is why my father, the father loves me. I give up my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I give it up because why, friends? I want to. When I realized that Jesus died for me because he wanted to, it changed me. And when I realized that it wasn't just a want to, but Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He said, oh, it was a want to, but it went beyond a want to. It was, I get to. It's a privilege to die and redeem the world and all who will trust in me. Wow. And when the early Christians realized this, that's where they came to the apostles, teach us more about Jesus. Teach us what he had in mind when he died. Teach, show us what we should give ourselves to. And they did. Let me just say this. My parents taught me something that I wonder if you've learned from somebody else. Maybe it was a coach, your parents, uh, a boss, a teacher. Have you learned, like my parents taught me, that you get more out of life when you give yourself? That's what my parents used to say. Jeff, you want to get more out of life? I know we've asked you to dust your room and you hate that. It's a have to. But you know, we can't make you want to. But you can choose to want to. Here's the idea. Give yourself. When you're dusting your room, when you're delivering papers, when you're bagging groceries at the grocery store, when you're having to wash dishes and you don't want to, it's a have to that you can choose to be a want to. And you can actually see it a privilege. You can learn something. When you're doing your homework, turn it from a have to to a want to. These are important lessons in life. And you'll always have a bigger heart. You'll get more out of life if you turn your have to's into want to's. Give yourself. I've never forgotten that. And I found that they're right. And you know what these early Christians did? They gave themselves. And they gave themselves first to Jesus and then to his people. And this is an amazing thing. So if you're following along, such devotion fires up a church and makes the world take notice. Such devotion fires up a church and makes the world take notice. Oh man, I think one of the reasons why so many people are skeptical about the church is because they've seen so much half-heartedness. 
or so much hypocrisy where instead of giving ourselves fully, we go, I'll give myself some, but I'm going to keep and hold stuff back. I'm going to hang on to control. I'm not going to open my heart fully to Jesus because I want to stay in control. And that's what sometimes churches are like in some places and some people, not all. So here's the last thing if you're in this section. Opening your heart to Jesus changes your motivation in life. Opening your heart to Jesus changes your whole motivation in life. So let me tell you a couple stories about some of my journey, and I wonder if it can connect with yours. So I told you, growing up in the church, my dad was a pastor, and so I was always observing. I was taking in a lot as a kid. I was taking a lot in as a teenager. Well, when I was 15 years old, this is the 70s now, so again, hippie time, but I had long hair down to my shoulders, okay? Some of you have been traumatized. You've seen the pictures, okay? <laughs> the point is, is that my dad let me have long hair in those days, even though it was controversial for some people. Well, um, my, my baseball buddies called me Nelly, okay? So... I walk into a church uh, service before the church service one day, and a man in our church who, has, who was a decorated World War II veteran, I mean, this guy survived being machine gunned across the stomach. This guy was brave. And he knew a lot of the Bible, and he was actually had been part of the church for a while. I think because, again, of the generational thing at that point, he came up to me and he grabbed my cheeks in front of a, quite a large group of people and said, what a pretty little girl we have here. And I remember thinking at that moment that devotion was up for a vote for me. I found myself moving away from devotion in that first moment. Now, I haven't made this clear in the last couple of services, so I want to try and get this right. I'm not saying what that guy did was right. But what I am saying is I would later realize that sometimes by doing life together, I was going to hurt some people too. And I would need them to be willing to keep loving me, forgiving me, working with me, setting boundaries if necessary appropriately. But I needed to learn from that man, Mr. Rebensdorf. I needed to learn that just like Jesus loved his church warts and all, he loved Mr. Rebensdorf as much as he loved me. And that sometimes I learn more by learning how to love people that don't always treat me right the first time. And so I've never forgotten that. The second story I want to tell you, so Mr. Rebenstorf, this was about Mr. Rudge. Now, when I hear Mr. Rudge, I always thought Mr. Grudge because the guy was grumpy. And I grew up with his daughter. And he was a leader in our church at that time when we first moved there. And he was always criticizing and he never smiled. I mean, I, he was a tall guy, I can still picture, he never smiled in those years. But after a couple years, my dad, who was so discouraged being pastor of that church, decided to invite a group of people from other churches that were willing to come and just share their testimonies and humbly and graciously, and then meet with us in homes during a weekend they called the Lay Witness Mission Weekend. And it was just ordinary people, empowered, that were interested in Jesus' church and his mission. And they came, and many of them stood up, and they, they just were so honest. And they were honest about their failures, about their successes, about how God was still teaching them. And as we listened, I mean, God just moved me through their testimonies. But anyway, I remember after they left, after the Sunday morning service, then on Sunday night, 
all those of us that wanted to were invited to come back and there was an open mic and anybody that wanted to could come forward and just share what God had done in their life that weekend. So I'm sitting down about the second or third row with my brother and all of a sudden I see Mr. Rudge coming towards the mic and I'm thinking, oh no, he's going to tell, he's going to criticize this or he's going to say this was a bad idea. He gets up to the mic and he can't talk. And as a kid, my radar went way up. And he said, uh, some of you know that I've been a leader in this church. And um, when people were sharing their testimonies this weekend, the Lord showed me that I've never really opened my heart to Jesus. I've gone to church my whole life, but I've never opened my heart to Jesus. I wanted control. This weekend, while those people were talking, the Lord got to my heart and he, he kept challenging me with this thought. I want you to open the door of your heart. So he said, man, I was really wrestling. And he said, finally, at the end of the weekend, I had the courage, he said, to open the door of my heart a crack. And the Lord washed the door away. And I knew this guy wasn't blowing smoke. I could see he is different. His motivation. I watched him smile that night. First time I'd ever see him smile. I watched him hug my dad and thank him for this. And I watched in the weeks and months that followed. I watched when people walked in our worship center. Many times they would hug each other, shake hands, smile at each other. They had this joy. I watched how people would stop and pray for one another. I watched people share their stuff. I watched a whole change in motivation. And I remember thinking, the church with all its faults is still Jesus' dream. And he wants us to move towards giving ourselves for the right reasons in that direction. And that's what I want to do. So I just want to ask you if you'd be willing to look at this last thing on the notes. And then you can, when you get your blanks filled in, you can put it away. I know that's what most of us do. But Lord, let your devotion transform my devotion to your church. Lord, let your devotion transform my devotion to your church. This, you know, we're, I don't know where you are, so if you're somewhere out here or you're moving this direction, what would it look like? What, what's the Lord wanting to do? So you can put your Bibles away, you can put your notes away, because I want to talk to you about what it might look like for us just to practice this, okay? And again, I hope no one feels strong-armed. I hope you don't feel guilted or pressured. Here's my honest heart. What I, when my daughter has come home a number of times and she said to me, Dad, I love coming back to Cherry Hills. I say, oh, honey, what is it you love? She goes, people want to be here. She said, I know there's some that don't, but for the most part, there's so many people that want to be here. She feels it. I feel it. You and I know the difference. So what would it look like what would it look like for you? Can I just say that when I walk around this campus back when there was still green stuff out there, the lawn team, the landscaping team, I'd look around and I'd see these people just doing it to the glory of God as I want to. I watch people walking in the hallways and serving children, students, adults, and I know it's because they want to. When I, when I think about, I don't know if you guys have heard, but $218,000 was given to the special offering this year. You did that. No one made you. 
and I just can't thank God enough. I think one of the reasons I get so emotional, do you realize how much it helps me to follow God by the way you give yourself first to him and then to each other, to me? It does something to me. But we want to give ourselves outside our walls too, and you help do that. And so, what is he saying to you? So do you mind? Here's, here's what I just want to invite you to do. Would you be willing? You can close your eyes. But you can even open too. But would you be willing to lift your face heavenward? We're going to worship God to close this service. And the reason why is because the Bible says that as we worship God, he can change us from glory to glory. I still straight arm the Holy Spirit sometimes, but he keeps bringing me back. I still grieve the Holy Spirit by my pride and sometimes saying things that I need to just apologize for. There's times that I become caught up with myself and the Lord keeps moving me back towards giving myself first to him and then his church. But what's he want? Does he want you to, when you enter this room, does he want you to give yourself more? Maybe in singing or listening or leaning in? Does he want you to take one of those next steps that's in the Bolton membership class in about seven weeks, the network class in about five weeks? I have no idea. Does he want you to start serving? Maybe you've never served. Does he want you to give some of your money? To, what does he want you to do? What would it look like if you began to give yourself and keep giving yourself? Talk to him. Listen to him. Look heavenward if you're willing. Let him show you. Some of you may not even be saved yet. And he wants to do that as a gift of grace in your life. Change your whole motivation. we worship you is because you took the have to of dying in our place and you made it a want to and even more made it a get to we are so honored by you now show us how to honor you show us how to do things out of a motivation of love in response to your love grace and truth, God, you've given us. So I pray you'll help us keep moving in this direction. Some of us may be tired or discouraged or disillusioned. Would you help us, God, to keep learning how to give ourselves first to you and then to one another and then to our community and world. Thank you for the privilege of being part of something bigger than ourselves. In your name we pray. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.